Sometimes we say that perspective is everything. I kind of like that saying. Perspective is everything. You have to have perspective. And yet for Christians, perspective isn't everything. Right? For us as Christians, we would want to say perspective is really important. In fact, we're going to talk about the importance of perspective today. But perspective is not the most important thing. It's not everything. Uh, what's everything to us is reality. Right? Because you can have a certain perspective and have it not actually be real or true. So for Christians, reality is everything. The fact that Jesus isn't a myth. The fact that Jesus really came to earth. Read John chapter 1. To the point where we touched him. We humans did. He wasn't just a spirit being. He really became one of us. And he truly and genuinely did everything right. And he actually, in reality, voluntarily went to the cross to be treated as if he'd done everything wrong for us. That he actually, really, truly was bodily raised from the dead and ascended and claims us as his own. Reality is everything for us as Christians. But perspective is really, really, really important. Okay? Specifically, perspective in light of reality. And that's how the book of Ephesians works. Okay, so this is week six, six chapters, doing sort of the 30,000 foot version overview of Ephesians. And the way Ephesians is set up is, to overgeneralize, three chapters of reality. This is who God is and this is his plan and purpose. This is who we are as spiritual rebels. It's worse than you thought. God makes us alive together with him. It's better than you thought. That we're joined together with Christ and then we're joined in the body of Christ. All of these realities in the first three chapters. They're extraordinary realities. And then, to overgeneralize, we have all of the commands, all of the the do's and all of the don'ts in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that have to do with perspective. In light of what God has done for you in Christ. And now that you are alive and can appreciate all that He has done for you in Christ. You have the Spirit of God who's made you alive. You've been united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. In light of all of that, now you have perspective to live for the glory of Christ. To live the right way. To to honor Him to now do what you didn't do before. And that comes from perspective. Paul never leaves it alone. He doesn't say, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, here's what Christ did. Now, having nothing to do with that whatsoever, here's the to-do list. No. There are gospel fingerprints, if you will, all over chapters 4, 5, and 6, so that we see that's really where the power is. The power is in the perspective. Okay, Now that's an overstatement again because there's power in the Spirit, power in our union with Christ, but he's drawing upon that and calling us to live a certain way. Okay, And Ephesians chapter 6 is no different. Ephesians chapter 6 is carrying on what happened in 5, dealing with husbands and wives, and now we're going to deal with parents and children and workers and bosses, and we're going to see that what used to be all messed up is now something we can 
see fruit in. We can see encouragement from. But it's because of what Christ has done. Okay? So I hope you're going to be encouraged. Then we'll get to the spiritual warfare side of things. But make sure you have the right perspective. We're looking at this in light of the gospel because of what Christ has done. And we have to keep that in mind. So we better hurry up or we're not going to get done. So let's go. We're going to go pretty fast because that's what we have to do if we're doing a whole chapter. Um, Let's start with children. Okay? Here's the perspective of children if children are now Christians where they weren't before. Okay, look at verse 1. Children, obey your parents. And let me stop there rudely. Children, obey your parents. That's what God has always said. That was true before the gospel came into your life. That was what God's law is for children. Children, obey your parents. I can say to all you kids, God says, obey your parents. If Jesus would have never even come to earth, it would be that way. Children, obey your parents. And I think that's a good idea. Right, moms and dads? (laughs) Obey. You should obey your parents. You should do what they say. It's what's right. It's law. How about this? The fact that no child, including this child, obeys their parents perfectly, the way God says, shows you your need for Christ. Okay? But then perspective comes in. Children, obey your parents. Here's the important little statement. In the Lord. He's giving us a gospel fingerprint. Okay? Carrying it over. Now that you're a Christian, you're not going to be condemned for your lack of obeying your parents. You should be, but you're not because of Christ. But now in the Lord, as a Christian, the perspective is there to say, Oh, I don't have to do anything anymore because the gospel is free grace. Well, that's true, but now you want to do the right thing. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, new ability, new perspective, new desire. There's going to be fruit there. There can be fruit there. And he says, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Again, the idea is, if you obey your parents, it'll be good for you. It's positive. But here it's all different because it's in the Lord. Now you have a new heart, new desire, new perspective. It'll be really good for you. Principle still applies. I would love to just preach a sermon just targeting my kids. Wish they were all here, you know. I told my little boys this morning because they like Ferraris. I brought them little Ferraris back from Italy one time, little, little baby ones. I told them, do you realize, Josiah and Owen, that to raise each of you will cost your mom and dad as much as a Ferrari? <laughs> according to the Department of Agriculture, I didn't tell them this part, I'll tell you. According to the Department of Agriculture, August 18, 2014, the average cost of raising a child born in 2013 through age 18 is $245,000 and change. $245,000. I could buy a 2015 Ferrari 458 Italia for $243,000. I have five kids, five Ferraris. I might just buy two and have a really cool house and garage. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. But then I did say, that's why you should be thankful to mom and dad. Yes, you're more important than Ferraris. 
But just think about all that parents do for kids. It's no wonder God's law says, children, obey your parents. It's right. Now, boys and girls, older or younger, what you should hear when you only hear that part is, it's right to obey my parents. They do a lot, not to mention spend a lot. But I don't. And sometimes when I do, I don't really want to. Sometimes I hate my parents. That would be the honest kind of response. That's why you need Christ. Apart from Christ, you will go to hell, boys and girls, for not obeying your parents. Because it's God's law that says to do it. That's why you need Jesus. Now, we're in Ephesians chapter 6 where he's saying, he's addressing you as if you are Christians. But if you're not, you should become a Christian. But here it's in the Lord. And now you want to do it. And now that you know you're not condemned for failing because you have Jesus, it's all the more motivating. I don't have the noose around my neck. I I don't don't have the, the burden of having to pay for it myself. I need to be careful about the illustrations I use with kids. But anyway, now I want to do this. Gratitude, new life in Christ. Obey your parents in the Lord. Perspective. I mean, how about this? Now your perspective is you know that mom and dad aren't perfect, but you can't hold that against them anymore because you understand Christianity and how it works. Because it used to be, well, my parents, they don't do the right thing anyway, so I don't obey. But now that you understand the gospel, if you do, you understand grace shown to your parents. Yes, they're sinners, just like you. What used to sound bad, children obey your parents. Now sounds good. Because it's what's right. You have a new heart that likes what God likes if you're a Christian. Let's move on to the next one. He says fathers, but he's doing what the Bible sometimes does, and that is um, makes a generalization. Um, it's assuming that a father is leading in the home, and so it's fathers and mothers. Not all homes have a father and a mother, but we can understand the intent. He's talking to parents. Okay? It's like qualifications for leaders, and they have to be you know, husbands of one wife. Well, he's just making the assumption that, that most men are married. He's not saying that you have to be married to be a pastor, but the idea is it's just how it usually is. Okay? Well, here it's fathers, Well, and, and mothers are partnering with that. Or if there's only a mom, well, you're the parent, so in principle this is going to apply to you also. Fathers, fathers and mothers. Parents is the idea in verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger or wrath, some of your Bibles translate it, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It makes me so mad. Sometimes. When my kids don't do the right thing. And I've told them what to do. I've told them more than once what to do. I've shown them how to do it. And they don't do it. It just makes me so mad. Right? 
And we say things or think things sometimes like, how many times do I have to tell you? Right? That kind of thing. And then we start treating our kids in such a way and we're on them all the time. And by the way, parents, no doubt, because you're a sinner and your kids are sinners, let's just emphasize their sin right now. You could be on them all the time. You can find things your kids don't do perfectly pretty easily, right? We can have open mic time if you'd like. (laughs) It's not hard to find things your kids don't do right. It's not hard at all. Okay? This passage is now addressing parents and trying to put it in a gospel perspective. Don't provoke them to anger, to frustration, to the breaking point. He's not saying don't train them up and discipline them because it actually says you should. But you, you don't have to take advantage of every opportunity you have because you will cause them to, right, is the idea, to break. So frustrated with you because you're always pointing out the wrong, which wouldn't be hard to do. Okay, gospel perspective here is, in light of what Christ has done and how patient he has been with you, right? Really patient, really long-suffering. In light of his forgiveness, because I'm I'm drawing now upon what we learned in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 4 and 5 as a matter of fact, because it talks about it, you want to imitate that now. As a gospel believer, you think about how the gospel works, and now it affects your parenting. There's patience, and there's room, and there's forgiveness, So you don't have to push him to the point of breaking. So helpful for me. So helpful. In light of the gospel, I can be a different kind of parent. Otherwise, not only am I a time bomb, my sons and daughters are going to be time bombs. Got to think about it. Let's move on to workers, lest we feel convicted. (laughs) Verse 5, bondservants. I'm just going to say workers because, I mean, the the idea is just forget middle class. And this is an overgeneralization, but you, you have rich people who pay people to work for them and do labor. And then you have people who do the work. Okay? Most of us would be in the category, if we were living in the first century, of being bondservants. So let's just call them workers. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There's our gospel fingerprint, our reminder to run back to one, two, and three. Oh, in light of what Christ has done for me now, I want to serve him, I want to do what's right, I want to please him. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Whoa! Doing the will of God from the heart. Now motives are changing. Rendering service with, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. He's your ultimate boss is the idea. Whether he is a bond servant or is free. Yeah, but my boss doesn't deserve that kind of work. 
you don't understand the gospel. Because you don't, you don't deserve eternal life. But he's given you eternal life. And now that he's given, he also has given you a job and structured authority. So you work as an act of worship. Even if your boss is a loser, even if your boss is a tyrant, even if your boss is not altogether honest, right? doesn't mean you can't look for another job. I'm not, that's a whole other issue, at least in our culture. But you're going to serve. You're going to work your hardest, do your best. This is what would be a genuine Christian work ethic. That Jesus is your ultimate boss, and so this is what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, but what if my boss... What if your boss is Jesus? Your boss probably has a Messiah complex sometimes. (laughs) But he's not the Messiah. But you're thinking in terms of perspective, gratitude unto Christ for rescuing you. I'm going to work hard. Easy to understand, super hard to do. One bit of help would be to keep remembering and keep being reminded of how great the gospel is. That the gospel is not God helps those who help themselves, right? It's that God helps the helpless. That God made us alive, right? And when we understand that it's that way, free grace given to us, I can even work for a bum. Not that I do. I wouldn't want to insult the elders of Omaha Bible Church. (laughs) Let's move on. Bosses. Let's call them bosses. Verse 19. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So if you're a Christian and you have people working for you, you're supposed to have a perspective on things that comes in light of who God is, in light of God's grace to you. In light of God giving you things that you didn't deserve, you're going to be a gracious employer also. You're going to be different. Thinking of God's kindness... Okay, let's, let's keep things going. Finally, verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord. Reminder of 1, 2, and 3. In the Lord and in the strength of His might. I like to read that the wrong way. I like you to read it the wrong way so you see how wrong it is to read it the wrong way. Let's read it the wrong way. Finally, be strong. Maybe we could say, finally, be strong with mightiness. Be strong. That would apply to all the things we've just heard. God could command you, children, obey your parents in the Lord and do it with strength, tenacity, diligence. Parents, you guys do this. Bosses, workers, you get the idea. And, and, and just, just be strong and just, just do it. As we overly say right now, get her done, right? 
I think someone's speaking in tongues. We need an interpreter. <laughs> right? It, it's, it's what sometimes people say. This, that's bootstrap theology. For a second, I thought, people don't know bootstrap. That's too antiquated. It's too old. And then I thought, yes, they do. Kids know bootstrap bill, right? Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Uh-huh. Bootstrap. They're talking about it in my house. Bootstrap Bill. Don't be like Bootstrap Bill. Just says, I'm just going to do this. He's like a zombie. Okay? That's you before Christ. I'm just going to do this. But you can't. And all you're going to do is beat yourself up. And all you're going to do is be defeated and have no encouragement if it's the get-or-done bootstrap. Be strong. Be a good boss. No, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's gospel perspective. In light of what has happened, in light of what Christ has done, and how He's empowered you by the Spirit and united you to Christ, be strong in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord. Changes everything. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. He seems to be elaborating on how to be strong. How to do this, okay? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I, I may be wrong about this. I, I was wrong once in my life. Um, I've been wrong many times. But it is fascinating when we do this kind of big picture overview thing. It, it forces you to try to keep things together and see how things relate. I'm going to suggest to you that we should keep the armor passage in the context of the relationships, in the context of the gospel, we might understand it differently. We might understand that that's the great battleground. Right? What has God called us to do from the very beginning? He's called us to love on a relationship level, whether it's our relationship to Him or our relationship to one another. Ephesians has been talking about that. And we're terrible at it because we're lawbreakers. We're sinners. So where's the battleground? The battleground probably isn't, you know, in some sort of like frightening, uh, you know, demonic kind of horror movie, Spielberg-esque, oh, spiritual warfare. Ethereal out there, you could never comprehend, you probably never even go there, most of you. But this would relate to every single one of us. If the be strong in the strength of his might... And then armor is directly linked to your relationships because we all live in that world and that's where the real battle lies. I'm going to suggest to you that that seems to fit with the flow a lot better. How do we do this? How, how do I function in my home and in my job and with other people and in the church? And How do I do it? Well, I have to be strong in the Lord and I need to put on the armor of God. That's how I can stand against the schemes of the devil. Think about how much Satan hates you. Especially in live Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, you used to be a loyal subject. Ephesians 2.2 2. It used to be you followed Satan, even if you didn't know you followed Satan, right? You, you, you had a big hook in your mouth. And you just followed him around, did whatever he said. Loyal. 
God makes you alive together with Christ, you're a traitor. Satan hates your guts. Satan so hates you it's not even funny. He wants to mess your life up. And in our context, that would be in these basic kinds of relationships. What does Satan want you to not do and not know? What are his schemes? Well, for now, let's just leave his schemes in Ephesians. I think we could even go back to 1, 2, and 3. Satan doesn't want you to understand God. He doesn't want, that's part of his scheme. He doesn't want you to understand how God saves. So he wants you to hate the words that are used for salvation in Ephesians 1, like lots of Christians do, unfortunately. He wants you to hate God's sovereign grace and salvation. He, he wants you to believe that you, you weren't spiritually dead before. He wants you to believe all those kind of lies. He wants you to believe lies about your relationships. Those are schemes with kids, children and parents, parents and children, wives and husbands, attack scheme, attack scheme, attack scheme, attack scheme. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and you do that by putting on the full armor of God and I'm suggesting to you so that you can fight where you have your battles, which is in your real life. Perspective. See, perspective matters here also. How about verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is perspective. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I just thought I was fighting with my wife. He wants us to know that it's a spiritual battle because if you don't know it's a spiritual battle, then you're not going to take the necessary means to have victory. Verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, right? Battle. I can hear this Hans Zimmer soundtrack in the background, right? I can hear Maximus saying, hold the line. That's the image. It's, it's gladiator kind of times and you're standing firm, right? This is a battle. This is a spiritual battle and you're not going to give an inch because of the schemes of Satan and you've got to be faithful and you want to honor Christ and you want to see victory. So you're going to stand there and you're going to be ready. It's, it's not... Peace time, it's wartime. And Satan really is after you because now you're no longer loyal to him. Who cares about the other guys who are still following him around? Now before we go on any further, I have a super interesting quotation from a commentary. I don't usually just quote commentaries, but I thought this was interesting from Peter O'Brien, probably the best technical commentator in Ephesians. He says this about our text. Most of the weapons listed in Ephesians 6, have their counterpart in Yahweh's, God's, 
armor of Isaiah 59:17 and that of his Messiah in 11:4 and 5. I just think it's interesting. Seems to be borrowing from the Old Testament to describe how God is outfitted. God in his warrior stance, in particular Messiah in his. And the argument goes like this. If you're a Christian and you've been united to Christ and the gospel and all of its benefits are yours, you don't fight this battle on your own. You fight this battle with God's armor, so to speak, in particular the armor of Messiah. In particular, we're talking about gospel. It's perspective. It's fascinating to me. And so I think we're going to see a lot of these things sound like they would describe the work of Christ from the armor of Christ. How about verse 14? Stand. Stand therefore, right? In light of what's true. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. In light of how Paul uses it, I'm going to say to you, think gospel truth. The belt, right? Like a putting on all my armor and the belt of truth, the belt of gospel truth, the truth about Christ, the truth about how salvation works. That's what's going to help me in my relationships because I'm going to understand in light of what's come before. And having put on the breastplate, guarding vital organs of righteousness, what's that? Sometimes it's used of doing the right thing. Okay, Righteous has to do with God's law, His courtroom. So do the right thing. Be ready to do the right thing. Could have that idea. Or Paul also likes to use righteousness as far as Christ's righteousness credited to us. It's a gospel term in that sense. I'm more fond of seeing it that way. But then he's just being redundant. That's what I think. You're, you're arming yourself with gospel truth. You got a gospel belt? You got a gospel breastplate. You're going to cover yourself from head to toe in gospel realities. I think that's what he's getting at. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Sometimes people think that's Part of your armor is doing evangelism. Because the feet, like in Romans 10, bring good news. Could be. Seems kind of a weird defense. That could be right. Let's not have a church split over it. But I'm going to tend to see it as a redundancy. It's a gospel of peace. From, from head to toe, I'm covered in gospel realities. And that's how I can be victorious against the schemes of the devil in a practical way. In my home life, in my work life, in my church life. Verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Yeah. Faith is reliance. Faith is dependence. And faith in Ephesians has to do with faith in Christ. It's a gospel faith. So I'm taking up my gospel shield too. 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which tells me all about the work of God, in particular as it would relate to the work of God in Christ for us. How in the world can I be a good stand firm? How can you do that? Days are evil. How can you deal with other sinners? How can you function? How can you have success? Because it's so hard. Well, you need to put on the full armor, the full gospel armor. And that gives you perspective so that you can maybe be a little bit more patient with your kids because God has been so patient with you. And you can love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, how do you keep that in mind? Because you keep forgetting it, because I keep forgetting it. I keep wanting to do the right thing when she does the right thing, which is a lot. (laughs) What I need is head to toe, covered. Gospel, 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 gospel. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. God, for, forgive others as He has forgiven you in Christ. Oh, we learned that in Ephesians. To the degree that that covers me, I can see good fruit in my life. I can see Satan not winning the battles. And that's exciting. I'm not sure I can write a best-selling book, though, if I take those views. It's going to be hard to put on a whole seminar, weekend seminar, how to do spiritual warfare, right? Oh, and here's, here's what you need to know. You need to know all the names of Satan. And you need to know there have been people, actually, that have, that have mapped out entire cities. They do these walks to figure out where the demons are and where the demons aren't. And uh, you got you to know their names and you got to know their ancestors and you got to know if anybody brought anything back from some other country where there might be witchcraft. And man, we could, we could make some money, I can tell you that. And we can make a name for ourselves. But we probably won't have a lot of spiritual victory But when we will have spiritual victory, where the real battles lie, the real spiritual battles lie, which has to do with our relationships, our ordinary relationships, is going to be related to gospel armor and getting the gospel right and getting the gospel in our hearts and heads and having the perspective that we can only have from that. If I could really get it and keep it at the forefront of my thinking and by the power of the Spirit and by the power of being united to Christ, if I can really, truly, genuinely be covered from head to toe in that, I'm going to see some spiritual success in my life. And so are you.
It's not easy to stand firm, be strong, mighty. But it's possible in the Lord. Praying at all times. Oh, that sounds, I'd rather just do a seminar and get it over with. Praying at all times, right? There's diligence involved. Don't, and don't remove that from what we've seen before. I'm going I'm to make sure I don't divorce that from our gospel context. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How about we do this in light of what we've learned so that these things can be how we equip ourselves. These things can be our battle gear. And we're praying all the time about that. Oh, we're going to see some success. We're going to see some victories. It's no wonder Satan, his common attack on the church is to get them not, to not understand what the work of Christ actually is and what he actually did and what he actually didn't do. Because if he can take that away, then there's really no power. I, my prayer is this, hopefully, and that, that we wouldn't move past it. It's fascinating to me... Um, The elders of Omaha Bible Church are reading a bunch of articles and understanding the gospel and understanding how law and gospel and law and grace and how all this works together and just reading a bunch of different things. And one interesting thing that Pastor Chris Peterson uh, drew our attention to was in one of Jerry Bridges' books. He's a, you know, a, an elder statesman, it seems like, in evangelicalism. Who couldn't like Jerry Bridges? He's just a kind, little, neat, little old man. Um, but he's written some super helpful books, and, and they've really helped the body of Christ. They've been very level-headed. They've not been sensational, and they've been very balanced, we might say. Stood the test of time. Probably the most famous one is his book called The Pursuit of Godliness. It's one of the first books given to me as a new Christian. Jerry Bridges says in a different book, The Discipline of Grace, um, that after he wrote The Pursuit of Godliness, he gave a lecture, and the lecture was called The Chapter I Wish I Had Written. And the reason he says that is because his book, The Pursuit of Godliness, assumes the gospel tragically. And he's basically saying, it's the biggest foul we could ever commit. I might put it in these terms. To ignore the, the, the organic, natural unity that is meant to be between Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and 4, 5, and 6, and therefore in your life, is a tragic mistake. Because we do need to get her done in the strength and power of His might. And where does that come from? It comes from our being united to Christ. We have to remember that. We don't want to make that mistake. We do make that mistake. Now the letter is wrapping up, so let's wrap it up. And all God's people said, Amen. Verse 19, And pray is the idea. And pray also, Paul is saying, for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
I wrote in my margin, to unbeliever and believer, I would take it in light of what you've been saying, to believers, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So pray that for me. It would be a good thing for us to pray for one another, whether it be in our evangelism or in our edification ministries. Verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you, all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. In conclusion, I promise, the best conclusion I could give, I think, and I quote, we love, because that's what we've been called to do in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, generically, we love because He first loved us. First John chapter 4, verse 19. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you loved us first. We learn all of that and how it works and what it looks like and the intricacies of how you loved us first when we were unlovely in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And thank you that you then call us to do what's right in light of that in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. May the men and women and boys and girls of Omaha Bible Church be people who are characterized by loving. By loving one another. By loving unbelievers also. Because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.